you know, I really love coming to <coughs> preach in this church. I was preaching last week in Larbert. Um, but I love preaching in this church because every time I'm preaching, I always get messages from people in the church to say, I'm praying for you, uh, praying that uh, God's going to speak through you. What an encouragement that is. I feel every time someone says that to me, they're saying, Stephen, I love you and I appreciate you. And we should be building each other up. We should be encouraging each other. And I find it such an encouragement um, when I come to preach that people um, that pray for me. And so I encourage each and every one of us to give that level of encouragement to each other every week. To say, I'm praying for you, thinking about you, I love you, I appreciate you, I value you. So in our uh, monthly prayer bulletin that we're going to be putting out with uh, the prayer points every day that Dion's just used, we're going to be picking people out from the church to put in so that everybody can be praying for individuals in the church. We are the church. You're the church. I'm the church. The person sitting next to you is the church. We are the church. Let's build each other up. So, um, today's message, uh, we're in the Old Testament again. Uh, Today's message is from Joshua chapter 10 and reading from verse 7. So it's Joshua chapter 10 reading from verse 7, if you want to get your Bibles out and follow along. I'm reading from the NIV. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men, just like the men that are gathered here today. We've got the best of the best in the room today. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and to Makeda. And they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah. The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O son, stand still over Gibeon. O moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jasher, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Amen. So we're looking at this text today because I think it's one of those pieces of scripture where those who do not believe, you know, the atheists out there that love to have a right good debate with the Christians to try and misprove this nonsense that we believe in uh, with the invisible sky daddy that we've got. These are phrases that atheists will use. Um, This is one of the pieces of scriptures that the atheists love because they think this is a complete nonsense. 
How is it possible that the sun could stand still in the sky for a whole extra day? Nonsense. That's what they say. But I would like to point out to you um, today that it's not nonsense, that it is entirely possible and by reasonable, reasonable means. Let's look at the next slide, Catherine. Catherine. Um, there's other pieces of scripture close to this one which are pretty similar. The parting of the Red Sea. I remember a story of a, a famous story of a scientific lecturer in America who was lecturing on how the parting of the Red Sea was not a miracle, that it happened naturally. And he looked at um, tidal patterns in the Red Sea. He looked at the, uh, the topography of the, the bed of the Red Sea. And he said, there is a stretch in the Red Sea where there is a, a shelf of land pretty close to the surface of the Red Sea. And sometimes there are violent winds that come in the area of the Red Sea. So at this time, where there was a low tide perhaps, if there was a constant wind from this direction at 67 miles per hour throughout the entire night, it would have actually driven the water back to either sides of this ridge. And then when the sun comes up and the temperature's changing, the water would start to come back in over this ridge. But it was possible, he said, that the whole of Israel, two million people, could have walked across this seven-kilometer ridge in the space of four hours and as the water came back in, if the Egyptians were pursuing them, then they would have been consumed by the water. And it all happened naturally. But someone in the lecture shouted out, what a miracle that is. What a miracle that is. And the guy said, what are you talking about? It happened naturally. He said, well, it must be a miracle of timing. That at the exact point that this group of two million people from Israel were fleeing Egypt, they came to the exact point, the only point in the Red Sea where there is this ridge. And they came at the exact point, the night where there was a 67 mile per hour wind that opened up this four hour window of opportunity for them to get across safely. And at the exact point when the Egyptians were pursuing them, they were consumed by the water. And everybody in the room agreed. They said, that is a miracle of timing. The, the lecturer then says, well, I've got a second theory. <laughs> and he says, and actually, actually, I put more stock in this theory. He says, there's a theory that the actual Hebrew translation of the scripture is not the Red Sea, but the Sea of Reeds. And he says, there was a lake near the Red Sea called the Sea of Reeds, which is now totally dried up. But at that time, it was a big body of water, but it was only knee to waist deep. And he says the whole of Israel could have passed through this sea of reeds because it's only knee high to waist high. There was no parting of the waters. And the same guy that started the argument says, well, that's an even greater miracle. The guy says, you don't understand what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. There was no parting of the waters because it is possible to traverse from one shore to another when the water is only knee to waist deep. He says, well, it's an even greater miracle that God drowned the whole of the Egyptian army in waters that are only knee to waist deep. <laughs> and everybody agreed. The picture up on the screen here is from 2001. There was a Swedish diving expedition in the Red Sea, and they came across these very weird uh, coral formations where there's a tall, thin spindle of coral, and the coral cannot support itself 
unless there was something in there that was a spindle. And then they've got this, this, this table, this circular table at the top, 90 degrees to the spindle. And then they found another one and another one and another one. They found dozens of them and they measured them and they worked out these are the axles of the chariots of the Egyptian army. And they measured the size of these axles and they're exactly the same size as the axle of uh, a chariot that's in the Cairo Museum from the 18th dynasty of Pharaoh, which is the same time as the story of the Egyptian army being drowned in the Red Sea. They've not, they're not allowed to break up the coral to look because it's, there's a preservation order on it. But uh, there's some funding going to be going on for a, a submarine exhibition, a, expedition in that area to try and find other artifacts. They found seemingly um, uh, horse bones down there as well. Um, so not conclusive evidence. My goodness, that's strong evidence. Do you think that looks like an axle on its end? A wheel? Good. <laughs> People look at the story of Joshua, the non-believers, and they say, impossible. It's impossible for the, the sun to be up there for an extra 12 hours. And yeah, it kind of sounds impossible, but let me show you some evidence that may sway you to say, well, I think you're already swayed because you already believe in the scripture. But I think it's good to have the support and the evidence to go along with it. I marveled when I saw these pictures of the, these chariot wheels, these chariot axles down in the Red Sea. Fantastic. So let's look at the next slide, Kathleen. And then the next slide. <laughs> Kathleen is my clicker today. I remember the clicker. There are, in folklore, around the world... The story is in Joshua that Joshua did pray to God and say, can you extend this day because although we've won the battle, the, Amorite, the five Amorite kings that have came together to fight against us, they'll, they'll scatter, they'll go back to their cities, they'll regroup, and that's five more battles we're going to have. If we just had more time, we could run them down. We've won the battle for today, but we need to destroy our enemies. We need more time. And he's prayed this ridiculous prayer to say, God, will you hold up the sun and extend the day by 12 hours? It's a ridiculous prayer. Evidence from around the world. When you look at this slide on the screen just now, we all know that when half the world is in sunshine, the other half of the world is in nighttime. You know, daytime, nighttime, everybody's got that concept. So when the land of Canaan is in sunshine, the story in Joshua, then over on the Americas, and the western tip of Africa, it would be nighttime at that time. There are 10 stories from ancient people groups in North America, Central America, South America, and on the very western tip of Africa, 10 stories from folklore of these ancient peoples that talk of a night that lasted twice as long as any other night. 10 different people groups that were not in communication with each other, all recorded to say there was a night that was twice as long. And then, in the daytime section of the world, there are five people groups, including Egypt, India, and China, which were some of the most advanced civilizations at the time. These five civilizations, these five ancient people groups, have recorded a day that lasted twice as long. And it really put stock in the Egyptians, because the Egyptians at that time in history, they had water clocks, and they could record the length of a day. 
And they recorded this very peculiar day that lasted 12 hours longer. Now, does that not point to the evidence that there was a day in the land of Canaan that lasted 12 hours longer? Phenomenal. This is where we get complicated. Let's go to the next slide. I'm now going to tap into NASA here. People say it's impossible that, when you think about it, how did God do it? How did God stop the sun for 12 hours? Because we understand that our world, it spins around, and that's how we get, and there's, it takes 24 hours to have one revolution of the world, uh, and it spins around so that we know we've got so many hours where our part of the world is roughly pointing at the sun, and we've got so many hours when roughly our world that we live on, the part of our world, is pointing away from the sun, so it's dark. We understand that. So how did God stop the sun for 12 hours from going down? Well, that's, that's a good answer, Ian. I like that answer. I accept that answer. He is God, and he can do anything. Jesus says in Luke's gospel, he says that what is impossible for man is possible for God. But let's look at one possible way that God did this. Because people are scratching their head and say, how? How did he do this? Well, let's get some detail into this. As the world spins round, it spins round at 1,068 miles per hour. That's almost as fast as my wife drives. <laughs> So, if God stopped the world from spinning round, which you kind of think he would have to do to keep the sun in the same spot, because the sun stayed in the same spot of the sky, that's what Joshua prayed, will you you hold the sun still right there? If God stopped the world from spinning round at a thousand miles an hour, three things would happen. Number one, if the world stopped, we would keep traveling at a thousand miles an hour. We would fly off the earth. The seas would move and there'd be tsunamis all over the world because the sea would move over the land and the magma inside the earth would move as well. And so there'd be volcanic eruptions all over the world. I was once involved in a car accident um, when I was 22 years old on the motorway at 70 miles an hour. I was driving to Glasgow to go to university and I was near uh, the M74 turn off and on the, and so I'm heading towards Glasgow, on the Edinburgh bound carriageway on the other side, there's a woman, an older woman, who was going to be travelling down to see her daughter in London and a Mr. turn off for the M74. So she saw a gap in the central reservation a couple of miles later and she decided to do a U-turn and then worked out as she tried to do the U-turn um, that she couldn't complete this U-turn, but she pulled out in front of me. At seven, I'm travelling at 70 miles an hour. I'm in the fast lane at this point. And everything goes in slow motion at this point when you think, oh no, this isn't going to end well. I can't go to the left because the, the traffic's full. It's pretty busy. This is morning time. And I can't go to the right because of the central reservation there. And this car has stopped in front of me I'm just going to have to brace myself. So I did. I locked my arms like this. 
and I hit this car at 70 miles an hour. And I hit the car so hard, 70 miles an hour, she was stationary. She went back across the central reservation, back across the two lanes on the other side of the carriageway, and right off the road, down an embankment, with the power and the force that my car hit hers. So my car stopped dead at 70 miles an hour. I've locked my arms. I remember my glasses flew off and hit the windscreen. And there were bits of my car 100 yards up the road as my car crumpled up at the front. I stopped. So I think of this story and I think, wow, if God stopped the earth, we would fly off like my glasses. My glasses still 70 miles an hour. When my car stopped, I stopped. I had a headache for six weeks after it, and they told me it was because my brain moved inside my head. That was a great day when I found out I've got a brain. It's confirmed. It's confirmed I've got a brain. <laughs> but it was bruised. My brain was bruised because it moved inside my head and hit my skull. Um, they gave me painkillers. I remember reading the, the, you know, the small print for the painkillers. Side effect number one may give you headaches. <laughs> What's the point of that? <laughs> this is where NASA comes into this. This is confirmed. There was a story came out about 20 years ago, and I don't know why Christians do this. There was a story came out 20 years ago that NASA was trying to work out um, the passage of time over the last uh, number of centuries to try and, uh, I don't know, work out how, how long something had been traveling in space. And it was Christians came up with this, and they said that as they were going back in time, working out time, they somehow lost a 24-hour period or a 12-hour period, and that was a confirmation of this Joshua story where God's holding the sun still. It then came out that this was a complete fabrication. NASA had never done this investigation. I don't know why Christians do this. They feel they have to embellish things to support God. Let me say this. God does not need us to make up fairy stories. God can stand up to scrutiny. So please don't embellish things when you're talking about God. I do get a wee check in my spirit every time I hear a Christian talking about praying for parking spaces. I was talking to somebody last week said, you know, God's amazing. You know, every time I pray for a parking space, I get one uh, when I go to Tesco's. But other folk go to Tesco's and then they pray and they get a parking space. How does that prove the existence of God? And you get the Christians that say, you know, I had a really horrendous cold and I prayed and asked God to heal me. And lo and behold, three weeks later, my cold left me. <laughs> How does that prove the existence of God? But Christians come out with this nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So no wonder a disbelieving, skeptical world says nonsense and points the finger at us. And they think of the story of Joshua and they say nonsense. Impossible. If you stopped the world, there'd be the tsunamis, the volcanic eruptions, and we'd fly at 1,000 miles an hour. Impossible. But NASA have confirmed that they've, they strongly believe they have three types of evidence that shows there is a tenth planet in our solar system, which they're calling Planet X. And this planet, due to the mathematical calculations they've carried out, they know because they can see um, how some stars have moved, they can see how Pluto has moved, and they say that's happened because a planet has moved by with a, a magma tail, they call it, which has moved these things. 
I said, so planet X, based on their calculations, is between three and ten times the size of Earth. And we orbit the, the sun in a kind of circular type fashion. I said, planet X orbits the sun in an elongated ellipse. So something like this, what I'm doing with my fingers. That, that's how scientific I am. There we are. Yeah, I never got into NASA. They said, this, this happens. So some, somebody took uh, some calculations and worked out, they worked out, based on the story of Joshua, that it is possible for this long day to happen, this day that the 10 people from, 10 people groups from uh, the Americas said was a, an extra long night of about 12 hours extra, and that the people from Canaan and east of Canaan and Egypt and, and India and China recorded an extra 12 hours of sunlight. So someone from NASA worked out that if planet X is seven times the size of planet Earth, and it passes in between the Earth and the Moon at a ratio of 70 to 30, it said if that happened, what would happen would be that the Earth would slow down at 4% per hour over many hours. So that's only slowing down at 40 miles an hour every hour for many hours. And then it would start to, as, the, as this planet passed by, it would go back up to its original speed, and that would give you an extra 12 hours of daylight in the land of Canaan. And also, planet X, because of the, the, what they've seen further out in our solar system with some disturbances, they say planet X will have a trailing asteroid field behind it, which goes with the second part of the story, that God sent hailstones down, and after 20 hours of fighting, there was more of the enemy killed by these hailstones than there was by the swords of Israel. So if an asteroid uh, scatter came down on Earth, uh, asteroids that come into Earth, there are asteroids that hit Earth just now, that usually between the size of a tennis ball and a basketball. And if they came down, uh, they, would, they would rain down after planet X passed, and there would be a shower for about an hour. That kind of rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> and that would happen. And that kind of goes with the story as well. So it's possible. If anybody ever says to you about this story and they say, impossible, absolute nonsense, then you can say, no, no, NASA has proved this is possible. Now, God can do it any way he wants. He sustains the whole universe and holds it in perfect harmony. He created it and he sustains it. You know, if the earth was uh, you know, just a little bit closer or a little bit further away from the sun, Life on this planet would not exist. It is in the perfect position for our life to exist. God holds all that together. And I believe that God could just hold the, the earth still and keep us in a position and hold the seas in the way they should be and hold the magma in the way they should be. But we can also say it's scientifically possible that this happened. Because of the most intelligent people on this planet have proved theoretically that this could happen. Anyway, this sounds like a science lecture, and I'm going to get rid of all the NASA nonsense now. And there's three things I really want to take out of this passage this morning. But first, first we're going to watch a wee video. Any second now. Thank you. 
came to her father and said, Daddy, you promised to give me a nickel. Father had promised to give her a nickel. She reached in his pocket. She couldn't find a nickel. She said, well, you've been a good girl, so I don't have any change. So he reached into his pocket and thought he'd give him a dollar bill. But he didn't have any ones. He only had a 20. He said, whoa. You know what? You've been so good. I'm going to give you a $20 bill. She said, but daddy, you promised me a nickel. No, you don't understand, baby. There's a bunch of nickels. A whole bunch of nickels. 20 nickels make a dollar. $20 make $20. A bunch of nickels. But she didn't understand. She said, as tears rolled down her face, daddy, why won't you keep your promise? Daddy, you promised me a nickel, and I don't have a nickel. He tried to explain again. No, you honey, you don't understand. It's a twenty-dollar bill. She did a temper tantrum and ran in naked right now. She went off on Daddy because Daddy wouldn't give her a nickel. That's what a lot of us do with our calling: settle for a nickel when God says, "Here's a twenty-dollar bill." This is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to be. And God says, "But here's a twenty, and we screaming. But why won't you give me my nickel? God is wanting you to take the risk of saying not my will but thy will be done because I believe even if your will is a cross on Friday there'll be a resurrection on Sunday dramatic effect. There are a few things I want to pick out from the story of Joshua here, not just from the scripture that we've got. I think of that little video, and I'll give you a wee example from my life, that um, sometimes I believe that we are praying for the wrong things, and sometimes we are settling for things when actually God's got something much better planned and prepared for us. You know, nine years ago, my, um, when the recession happened, the uh, house building company I had at the time was struggling financially because of the recession. And I prayed for months, God, will you save my business? Will you protect my finances? Will you, will you save my business so I can keep building houses to bring honor to your name? I prayed this for months. I screamed out to God from my heart. I was down on my knees, sometimes in tears, because of the, the, the pressure of the situation, said, God, will you save my business so I can keep building houses to bring glory to you? He didn't save my business. But he then called me into psychology. And I can honestly say, nine years later, having worked with 2,000 adults, 2,000 young people, and seen hundreds of lives changed and transformed for the better. I am so glad that God did not answer my prayer in the way I wanted it answered. I'm happier in my work now than I've ever been. I see the value in what I'm doing. I see God at work in these things. And yet, that had not even entered my head nine years ago to go into psychology. That's what God had prepared for me. For the people of Israel, for hundreds of years, they prayed when they were in slavery in Egypt 
Lord, will you save us from this slavery? Will you get us out of this place? This is horrendous. And he sends Moses and he sends miracles and they are released. Just imagine the joy that would have been in their heart as they walked out of Cairo, Cairo that day. See you later. Sayonara. We're out of here. It's party time in the desert. Israel on tour. Here we go. <laughs> what a great day when it was the first day of freedom for every one of those Israelites as they walked out of Egypt that day, their first day in their life that they were not a slave, the first day of their life that they were free. God had done this amazing, miraculous thing to release two million Israelites out of slavery in one day. Amazing. And yet weeks later, weeks later in the desert, they want to stone Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. And they're pointing the finger at Moses and saying, why have you brought us to this place? We would have been better back in Egypt where we sat around pots of meat, they said. They actually want to go back to slavery. How ridiculous. Where God has already told Moses, I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm going to take you to a place that flows with milk and honey, a place of great prosperity. I, the Lord your God, have prepared this land for you, for you to prosper in. And yet the Israelites are saying, we want to go back to Egypt. Ridiculous, isn't it? Ridiculous when you think about it. And then eventually they get to the edge of the promised land. They're on the edge of the Jordan River. And they send 12 spies in to the promised land. And they come back and 10 of them actually make stories up. They embellished things and said, there's giants in this land. And my goodness, the cities, the, the walls are so high, they're so fortified, we'll never take them. And actually, the land doesn't look that good. And they say, well, let's just keep going through the desert. But God had promised them this land. This is where I want my people in my land, where you will flourish, and it'll be great, it'll be fantastic. And they said, no, actually, we think we'll keep going with what we know. We'll stick with the desert. We went to the desert last year. We went to Qatar on holiday, and we went out of the city for one day in the desert, and it was great fun out in the four-by-fours. But I'll tell you what, I would not want to spend a long time in the desert. I was happy to go home that night into the comfort of an air-conditioned house. The desert, there's nothing there apart from sun, shine, and sand. That's it. And Israel confined themselves to that for 40 years. 40 years when God said, I've prepared a wonderful place for you. It's amazing. And they said, no, I think we'll keep going with this. What a ridiculous decision. And you think, who would make that kind of decision? And the truth is, we do. We make that kind of decision on a regular basis because we restrict ourselves to what we know and we pray about what we know and yet God has prepared great things for us. I believe that this story has great relevance for us because this church is 40 years old and the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. Now, I'm not saying that this church has been in the desert for 40 years. In that 40 years, there were miracles every single day. God sent manna every single day to the Israelites. 
He drew water out of a stone. When they complained about meat, he sent a flock of quails down, and they ate quail all day long. There was amazing things. There was the tabernacle. There was the tent of the the meeting. God came down and met with Moses. Amazing, miraculous things happened. And there have been miracles in our 40-year journey and amazing things. A time when we've been with God for 40 years, and the Israelites were with God for 40 years in the desert. And we've been with God for 40 years in Whitburn. But I believe God's got a promised land for us. I believe there is more for this church, for every member of this church in your own lives and for our own church collectively. I believe there's a promised land. And I believe that Stevie Roy is our Joshua that's going to take us into the promised land. Stevie Roy is an exceptional leader. I feel very blessed that he is our pastor. I feel very blessed that he is encouraging people and, and raising up people. And I believe that we are about to get to the promised land. But the question is, what is the promised land for us in 2018 as Christians and as Whitburn Pentecostal Church? What does the promised land look like? I think the promised land is everybody fulfilling their full God-given potential. A higher standard of leadership a higher standard of discipleship, a higher standard of uh, relationship with God. And the prosperity will come from that. We've had 40 years of just surviving in many ways. Like Israel getting the manna. Here's enough for today. It's enough for today. It's enough for today. I believe the prosperity that came from the promised land was huge prosperity. And I think there's going to be huge prosperity for our church, an abundance of people coming to our church, an abundance of healings, an abundance of people being transformed. I believe that is the promised land, that this church will expand and get bigger because of God's fruit, God's blessing. Anybody agree with that? Well, that's good. That's good. The second thing is, I believe that God prompted Joshua to pray that prayer. What a ridiculous prayer it is. Who would even think of praying to ask God to make the sun stand still for 12 hours? Ridiculous. It's a crazy thing to pray. But scriptures tell us that Joshua was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes in the New Testament that says, you know, when we pray, we don't know what to pray about. We do not know what to pray about, but the Spirit within us prays on our behalf, sometimes in groans and moans that we don't understand. I believe that God prompted Joshua to pray that prayer because he knew it was happening. Maybe it was Planet X passing by the planet saying, by the way, I've prepared an extra 12 hours. I just want you to show and make sure that everybody in Israel knows that it's me that's doing this. Joshua, pray this prayer. Pray it now in front of all of Israel. Raise your hands up to the sky and ask me to stop the sun because I'm going to do it. God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you today, are you open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your prayer life? To pray things that are not just our shopping list of, will you do this? Will you bless me with this? Will you do that? Will you do that? Uh, and get through this list of requests. Yes, it's great to put petitions up, but we must in our prayer life be still and know that he is God and let him speak to us and let him prompt us to pray things that haven't even entered our head yet because that's the way to pray. 
God prompted Joshua to pray that prayer, I believe. 100% I believe that. Joshua, pray this. And he's probably got his hands up and doing this in front of Israel. And as the words come out, he's probably saying, where did that come from? That's a nonsense. But he did, he prayed it. There are trees in, in the desert in America called the Joshua trees. Anybody's a U2 fan, there was a, an album came out called the Joshua Tree. And U2 are a great Christian brand. You should really read the story of U2 and how God has worked through U2. Oh my goodness. But uh, it was the first Christians that came to America and they saw these trees in the middle of the desert, all these wide plains, nothing happening. And all of a sudden there's a t- tree standing on its own with branches like this. And it says, that reminds us of Joshua asking God to keep the sun up for an extra 12 hours. And they called them the Joshua trees. Amazing. Personally, if I was in that desert, I'd be chopping that tree down saying, ask God to put the sun down a wee bit. It's a bit too hot for me. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I want to say today is that we need to be obedient when we pray. When we pray, we have to be prepared to listen to what God's saying and then follow it through. I think of Joshua as a leader. My goodness, at the start of Joshua, Joshua chapter one, God speaks to them and says, I want you to be bold, I want you to be courageous, and I want you to be obedient to my word. And after the first big victory they have in the promised land, Joshua gathers all of Israel and he reads out the whole scriptures to them so they can meditate on it, being obedient to God. But being bold and courageous, he takes the army of Israel and said, God has told us, he's given us this land, and all these ungodly people that are in the land, he's going to give them all to us, and we're going to wipe them out. That's what God's commanded us to do. We must go and do it. So he does. He goes and does it. But one of the things on that journey is Jericho. Now, <laughs> I imagine, I put myself in the position of one of the soldiers of Israel when Joshua comes along and says, right, boys, I've been praying to God. This is how we're going to take Jericho with these big walls. God wants us to walk around the whole of the city and then stop, and that's it. I said, wow, that's a weird military plan. But God says he's going to make the walls fall down. Okay, so they then go and do it, and they walk around in that blistering heat all the way around the city. And I can just imagine the end of it with sweat pouring off of them. Joshua, did you really hear from God? I think your head's been boiled by the sun. This is mental. How are the walls going to fall down? What's the plan again? Oh, we're going to walk around the city today. Wow, I'm knackered. But we're going to do it again tomorrow. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Wow, this is crazy. And then on the seventh day, something different. Thank goodness at last. What we're doing on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. <laughs> that sun's really getting to your head. But God says on the seventh time, we make a big noise and the walls will just fall down. It sounds crazy. And I think, well, what would I be feeling if I was there? I would be, as I'm walking around Jericho, I'd be looking up to see if the walls were wobbling a wee bit or cracking. You know, I'd be encouraged if a brick fell down. Ah, it's working. It's working. Let's keep doing it. But imagine this. After six days, nothing, not a crack in the wall, not a brick falling. What would we do in that situation? Would we keep doing it? Would we keep following God's direction? Or would we give up and say, ah, it's not working. 
I can't see this working. It's ridiculous. I'm sweating here. But it happened. They did it. They followed God's instructions to the letter. Jericho's walls fell. And they took Jericho. And the word spread throughout the land. And that's why five Amorite kings came together in this passage to fight against Joshua. But I love when you read past this passage that Joshua, when he pursues the five kings, gets the extra time to, to, to not have to fight them again. Uh, they won the battle, but he gets rid of every single one of them. And when he gets the five kings, something really prophetic, I think he does here. He gets five men from his army. And he says, come, this is the enemy that God has given us. Put your foot on their neck. And he gets five men to do that with the five kings. And Joshua repeats the words that God gave to him, to his five men, and says, be bold and be courageous. For the Lord your God will give you the enemy and put him under your feet. And then they slay the enemy. These are words that are repeated in the Psalms that God will put our enemy under our feet. And Paul talks about it, that God will put our enemy under our feet. And Joshua does this. He actually puts his foot on the neck of the enemy and says, we are bold and we are courageous. We are the men of God. And he slays the enemy. I believe God is calling us to go out into all of Whitburn. This is words that have been given to us as a church, words that's been given to us as a senior leadership team to go out and pray in the land round about Whitburn and God will give us the land that we walk. Either we believe that or we don't. Either we are obedient to that or we're not. If we're obedient to that, I'm looking forward with amazing anticipation about what God is going to do in Whitburn and through this church. Are you excited about that? So the question, I'm going to finish with one question, it's this. Are you ready to go into the promised land? Are you ready to do the fresh thing that God's calling you to do? As God speaks to us individually and as a church, are you ready for those changes or you want to hold on to the same old, same old. We've done these things for 40 years. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to stay in the desert with the manna. Because that's what we know. Where God's saying, here is the promised land. Come and do these things and you'll get this. Are you ready for change? Hallelujah.